This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. talked about Shannon Gilbert and Brittany Drexel and you you said that uh, cases like Shannon Gilbert sometimes keep you up at night they do what what did you like what happens there like what like you start thinking about it or can't stop thinking about it or like I've never looked into the, the Long Island serial killer case and the tangential cases that that involves, except from the aspect that Shannon Gilbert's sister killed her mother in a sort of bipolar or manic uh, fit in, that she intervened in. And that came up and that interested me. And so I learned more and I was putting all these pieces of it together in my head because I do remember the news saying that, you know, they were searching for a missing girl and they were finding all these bodies back in like 2010 going into 2011, I guess when that was happening. And so I, so I don't know that much about the case. And then I did, I was aware of the sort of uproar that the family has had since the 911. I'm, I'm sorry, since the case. And a lot of it revolved around this 911 call not being released. It was a big deal, especially since, you know, when Public information is withheld uh, after the Freedom of Information Act occurred. While it's not necessarily a FOIA request, if it's not like a federal record, states have their own laws that require them to release documents or like 911 calls or things, anything that's public, right? And part of the thing with Shannon's 911 call was they were saying that it, they couldn't release it because it was part of an active investigation, but they were saying that they were sure that no foul play was involved, right, in her particular case. And when it came out last week, it was really the first time I had thought about it in a really long time, it seems like. I mean, of course, we had two big things happen. We had uh, Brittany Draxel's body was found and the 911 call for Shannon Gilbert the night Shannon Gilbert disappeared was released and it happened all really fast. And I guess it's just kind of overload on my brain because I want to catch up on things as soon as I, like with the 911 call, for example, the uh, Gilbert family's attorney, uh, he has maintained his position that it indicates certain things. And I don't feel like I don't necessarily agree with what he hears there but I'm like reading the transcript of the call and I'm like reading all this information. And I think that the reason it's keeping me up at night and I'm actually dreaming about it is because it's just trying to make sense of all this stuff after having a case that's gone by for, you know, 12 years and not really following it. And then I think I just overload my brain. What was interesting about that call being released and Brittany Drexel happening sort of, uh, press release after press release was because those things kind of take place in the same space and time a little bit. Like They're pretty close. I mean. April 2009, May 2010. So for people who are into true crime, it would be pretty easy to sort of get sucked into one or the other. I, you know, it's Shannon Gilbert's case is hard for me because with the history of the other stuff that happened later in the family and like sort of what I hear on the 911 call, I could still see, like I have questions. Like they talked about, uh, you were talking about the family attorney. He says that there's a hole drilled in her hyoid bone and her larynx was missing. And you and I sort of thought that would be animal activity or scavenging from the body being there for 18 months. And and I, I do want to say we did read the same the very same autopsy report that he is speaking of, right? Yeah. And I didn't see anywhere where that was the case. Did you? Unless there's some kind of supplement, a supplementary thing like the family got, I did not 
I didn't see the exact same things he did. I saw some of the questions that that he was asking. Like, like yes, there was some stuff that indicated there were some missing parts, and there were some parts that were rough, and usually that happened from like the muscle and the cartilage and the bone all separating. I did not. There was nothing there that would make my brain go to the conclusions he got to. He also had other stuff he said about her screaming and and like these other things that like. I have to make a huge leap to get with, on the same page with him. And honestly, I sort of miss the cliff and I end up with my fingers and I'm dangling off the edge of that cliff he's on. I don't know where he's at. Like, I, I don't I don't come to the same conclusions he did about well, he, Shannon's case. Most notably, I think, is that he says that it looks like, um, and he actually gives like, I don't know if it's 5 16th or what. He gives a measurement it's three sixteenths of a hole that was drilled that is not supposed to be there. And I don't see that in the report. Also, he references several times, and I actually heard it. So this attorney was uh, given, he was allowed to listen or read a trans. I think he listened. He listened to the 911 call um, under the condition that he was not to speak of it, of anything that was said in it. Um, publicly, like, and I don't know exactly when that happened, but I know that when he did that, and then after he's responded to the 911 calls release, he has said numerous times uh, that Shannon was, you can hear her blood curdling screams, I believe is the exact phrasing he uses. And I did not hear any blood curdling screams. And I feel like that's a really important distinction. I heard a girl who was pretty calm and focused, albeit possibly paranoid. And like I even said, I thought she could be a little stoned uh, uh, or drugged, I guess would be the right word. Roofied is something I said to you privately. Like, And we the reason we were looking at the autopsy separate of that, because we saw the autopsy first or the autopsy. It's a, it's a second private pathologist opinion of an autopsy is what you but might look at. And it's what the attorney was using to make his statement. Supposedly is the same report. Right. I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that we're all on the same page from what I can see. Yeah. So the specific question we were trying to answer was, was there enough left of Shannon Gilbert's remains in terms of soft tissue that they could do a really good toxicology they really only reference cocaine there in in the secondary private pathology report by Dr. Michael there, Baden. It said there was no indication of any sort of drug use or abuse, including cocaine. Right. That's that's the only thing that they specify that we know they tested for. Otherwise, they just sort of said there wasn't, you know, they, they kind of blanket it. And you don't know what tests they run because different tests and different panels pick up different substances. And one of my questions was that I feel like it's sort of two-pronged when you've got a body that um, has been out possibly where it landed the night she disappeared, you know, for like, I think it was like 20 months. My question is like twofold. One, like, can, is there enough to test? And the answer to that is yes. They had soft tissue that they could test. And the other prong of that is do certain drugs break down in a way, uh, while they're, while the soft tissue is sitting there on the body waiting to be found that wouldn't show up in a toxicology report so much later. And because I'm not an, uh, you know, I'm not a forensic pathologist or a medical examiner, I don't know the answers to that. And so I find it, I, I was, honestly, I was stunned that there was nothing in our system, Right. I find that a little bit hard to believe. Um, but there are things that aren't necessarily drug related that can cause sort of that, you said stone, sort of that delayed kind of, I don't even know how to describe it. I stoned is a good way to describe it, but she was just kind of like lulling a little bit. And I would say she could have been dehydrated. She could have been extra tired. I described a couple of like psychological conditions related to being in that line of work and compartmentalizing where you dissociate or, or there's other things that could cause that. But most of those things don't result in someone calling 911. 
Well, right. And, uh, but I do think that you can have a physiological impact from, uh, like being dehydrated that causes an exacerbated, uh, mental response. Um, I just, I think, I think if I were to really, and I can't really look at this stuff because it makes me queasy, but I feel like there's probably an answer that, yes, uh, it is possible that uh, on the night of her disappearance, she could have had something in her system that a toxicology report that is done 20 months later on the remains that are left that have been exposed for that period of time might not show it. Yeah. And what we were really trying to account for there is this one nagging question that we both had. And this is what sends me down this rabbit hole, like all together. And and so we played the 911 call. People can hear it. It's in the previous episode to this. Um, that's Lost Girls and Found Girls. When you hear it, it's it's a 20 minute call or so. We play it from essentially the opening to the ending. I didn't cut anything out. So there's nothing missing from that. The transcript I don't, I don't read exactly what's in the transcript as it being exact to what I heard, but it's, it's close proximity. That's out on the internet. You can find the transcript of the 911 call as well. Our question was, okay, so we account for, say, a psychotic episode or a whatever, whatever you want to call it. She's having a moment where, for some reason, she's decided she needs to call 911 and get the hell away from these people. Whether those people are actually involved in anything nefarious remains to be seen. But this is the nagging question we had. And I think this is probably what made you not be able to sleep. So this girl, who's she's described as looking like a teenager by one of the other 911 callers. Small, petite, looks immature. He says um, that a little girl is running around. A 14-year-old little girl is what the guy says. And I think that's Coletti. Yeah, so our our question is... Once this girl goes down in the, they, they describe it as her being in the marsh and going down in the, in the high reeds and weeds there. Once she goes down at five something in the morning, give or take, um, they, that's just based on the timing of the 911 call and, and what else has been released. The, the question we have is why doesn't she get back up? So and I think it's really relevant. And uh, one of the main things about reading the uh, secondary autopsy report was that there's no indication she drowned, right? There was no asphyxiation by drowning mentioned in that report, which would be one of the reasons you could potentially, like, because if she passed out in water, she could potentially die from asphyxiation by drowning, right? Yeah. But that isn't mentioned in that report. And I think that's where we started because it's, it's not normal. So let's, you know, let's set the scene here. Um, it's, you know, about 5 AM, uh, on, uh, what, what day is it? May the 1st, May 1st, 2010. But is it the first or the second? That's the question that I wasn't. So it's the first, it says she vanished on the first. There's no, um, it's not ambiguous because it is so far into the early morning hours. Got it. So, so she goes out, uh, would it be April 30th? 30th. Mm-hmm. So she went out on April 30th. So the 911 call is made on May the 1st. Right. And then they start finding human remains on December the 11th. So months later. Um, and they don't find her until December 2011. So, okay, I pulled it up on May 1st, 2010. Uh, it was a Saturday, and the sun would have risen at 6.28 a.m. And so you're talking about um, less than, you know, a couple of hours that from the time the 911 call is played because she, I'm, I'm sorry, the time the 911 call is made she runs down the road. Um, it looks like uh, she ends up coming to rest somehow, not too far from where she started, right? And she just right. can't be seen because of the high weeds um, in the marshy area. And the thought was that uh, she had drowned, drowning by asphyxiation, uh, and or asphyxiation by drowning. And so, what that would entail would be somebody who was running in the dark and you know fell their head was uh, submerged in water to the point that they 
um, drowned. But that isn't what happened. And so if she had nothing in her system, the toxicology is clean as far as the 20 months later or however long it is now later. If she was just having a mental issue or some combination of something explainable that she's paranoid and going out there, she goes down at five something in the morning uh, within less than two hours, the sun's going to come up and she's in theory going to stand back up and be like, where am I? And get oriented, right? I think part of the problem with her like sort of spastic behavior after she left the house she was in was how dark it was out there. It was really dark. And I don't know that um, everybody's familiar with like neighborhoods. If you don't have streetlights, uh, my neighborhood doesn't have street lights, and it is a completely different world like when the sun goes down because it it's something we take for granted, and when they're not there, it's crazy. But I feel like the logical pattern here would be like she was so upset that she was hiding in the the grass marshy area. She goes down, the sun comes up, and her body lays there, and it lays there for the next 20 months or almost 20 months. So... What occurred in her body that made her not get back up once the darkness had lifted? That's where it kind of falls apart for me. And I kind of keep in mind that it's possible that, uh, you know, there was some sort of uh, underlying health issue that would have caused her to, you know, when she passed out, to die, right? But you have to wonder, like, well, let's let's say she, um, and that makes me think maybe hypothermia. I, I don't know that for certain. Um, I know that it doesn't have to be like super duper cold when your body is out in the water necessarily. It would be difficult to determine things like drowning and hypothermia based on the remains that are left, because obviously a lot of time has, has lapsed here and that's a possibility. But so to give people an example of like some of the other questions we were asking and and where we were sort of headed with this, you wanted to know, well, how did, you know, Peter Hackett have information in order to make this bizarre phone call that he made? I don't, um, I don't think we covered the answer to that in the last episode, but you figured it out based on piecing together statements other people had made Right, her boyfriend um, and the driver that she was with, uh, Michael Pack, and her boyfriend was Alex Diaz, I believe is his name. They went back out looking for her after she didn't turn up because Michael Pack, after she had basically ran off, he left because she'd been on the phone with 911. He didn't really know what was going on. He couldn't talk any sense in her into her, so he left because he didn't want to deal with whatever fallout was coming in case the cops showed up. That's my assumption. But um, I do know for certain that uh, he did go back out to where he had left her with her boyfriend once she didn't show up. And they spoke with several of the neighbors there. And one of them was Hackett, who was a neighbor. And he was genuinely interested in helping find Shannon and figure out what had happened to her. And it uh, came to light that they had actually given, uh, the boyfriend and the driver had given the neighbor, Dr. Hackett, the mom's phone number and said, this is her mom. If you, if anything comes up, you know, give her a call. And uh, I feel like the whole situation of how uh, Dr. Hackett supposedly called Shannon's mother, which has been shown in phone records to have occurred, right? Um, He did call, but I think that there was a lot of misunderstanding there because I don't feel like um, the whole home for wayward girls situation that came up, I think he said one thing and she understood another thing and it all just got out of hand because it sounded to me like once I figured out they had given uh, the neighbor, the phone number, it made a whole lot more sense because that, you know, he was trying to help the situation and he probably made some assumptions based on the information he was given. 
And suddenly he's on the phone with the mom making a plan for when they find her, right? That's what I think is happening there. I don't think he did anything to her. Don't even think he had contact with her. He basically just ends up insert, inserting himself in there. Either, but I think it was from a good place because he was a doctor and it this girl clearly had a problem. Yeah, I you know, I would have to see like like how that conversation unfolded, but I, I agree with you that this guy probably wasn't I mean he he might have been inserting himself, he might have been just trying to help, whatever it is. My point with that is I feel like that sort of lead is is tied up and it's an it's a good example of how most of the things that if you look at her case are tied up um you know there's there's pretty innocent explanations for most of it when it comes down to whether or not she is the victim of a serial killer i will say it's unlikely but that's because go ahead no i was gonna say she's not the victim of a serial killer yeah but that's because my my perspective is because I went down this crazy rabbit hole. Once you talk, so so people understand. Like we have a lot going on right now. Like we've interviewed multiple people in the last two weeks for other things that are coming up. Like later on, we had multiple episodes where we were talking to um, a victim in another case, and we were trying to like work out how she could record with us so that we could bring her on the show later. We had we have all these little things going on that like. Throw, me throwing the Long Island serial killer 911 call and the press conference related to Brittany Drexel into the mix, like it makes things a little crazy. So I figured why not just go like one more round. Um, There's a different episode I wanted to put up, but then I was like, I need, like, I need to go down this rabbit hole because I just need to, to see like, uh, like, can I satisfy this for myself? And ultimately I think, um, and people probably don't want to hear this part. Once you hear what I'm going to say in my plausible speculation, um, it makes the Long Island serial case a lot less serial killer and potentially a lot less interesting. Although I will say the one thing I can't explain is Shannon Gilbert. I think I can explain this in a way that people will understand where I was coming from. I went back and looked like through the evidence photos that have been released over the years. And for people who don't know, if you Google Long Island serial killer, or it might even be Gilgo Beach killer, Suffolk County up there, they're one of the jurisdictions involved. They have put up a website where you can go and like you can look at different documents and see different videos. And uh, there's different things that you can um, you can look at. And one of those items that stood out to me is this leather belt. When I saw the leather belt originally, I didn't think all that much of it because there's no explanation for it. It just says that it's found, if you if you go with semantics, the words in the press release and on the website indicate that it's found somewhere in the first group of people that were found related to Shannon Gilbert's case. So they're looking for Shannon Gilbert. But it's the first four that they, the first four sets of remains that they found that the belt seems to be related to because they branch that off and they call that the Gilgo Beach Four. Right, and they say that um, they're fairly certain it doesn't belong to any of the victims, and it's at least been handled by the the killer, a killer. So I wondered if it was not something that like the killer didn't realize they had left behind, and. The idea is that it either says HM on the stamp on the underside of the belt or that it says WH. So I started with NamUs and um, the Department of Justice, and I started going through. I was looking for missing people from this time and space before it, after it, that could potentially have those initials. And I came across an incredibly weird and wayward missing persons report. And the reason I say it's weird and and wayward in terms of being a missing persons report is the person in the report is only missing to the person that filed the report. And under most circumstances, he would not be considered missing because everyone knows exactly where he is. And here's how that goes. If you look at Long Island, New York, 
you've got parts of Suffolk, Nassau, King and Queens counties. And there's approximately 243 unidentified persons cases that are tied to Long Island. So these are people that have been found there, but don't have a name officially. And then if you go over and look at the missing persons side of this, there are in that same area, there are roughly 170 missing persons that are considered to be within the confines of those four counties and are considered to be Long Island cases. I've been looking at these for a number of years because there were a series of cases back in the 70s that interested me that there was a pattern to them. But no one has ever really like linked anything um, to those cases uh, for the missing persons. And in all honesty, I um, was only looking at them to see if there were cases that would have uh, the initials that we were looking for. And that's first name, last name, middle name. Um, and so what I ended up doing is I, I found a person who had been reported missing in New York, whose initials were HM. He went missing, and I put that in big air quotes, in 2006. But I don't believe that he's missing. And I'm not going to say his name here um, because of how this all ties together. This is what I will say about the Long Island serial killer cases in terms of me looking at it and going, is this a serial killer? Is this something you lose sleep over? I don't want people to lose interest in some of the unidentified remains and missing persons that are affiliated with this. But I came across what is probably, in, at least in my mind, the most plausible scenario of, of what could happen. And it starts because I was looking into that belt. Um, and, and the way that I, I sent this over to you, which I, I know I'm like, pretty far out in cuckoo land when I talk about all of this, I could never find like a good reason that these bodies would all be in this one place that wasn't a serial killer, except now I have. And based on the timing and kind of the place of it all, I'm pretty sure that what we're looking at is actually some form of gang dumping ground. And it's a specific gang, although there are multiple gangs active on Long Island, obviously, with the counties that I, I listed off there. I did note that one particular gang had, gang had an uptick in the late 90s all the way up to 2010 in their activities in that part of New York. And that gang was MS-13. If you go and look at MS-13, you will find more and more violent publicized cases starting in 2003. And by the time you see these cases, they're related to previous cases. Um, typically, you'll find a lot of shootings and you'll find a lot of stabbings. Uh, a particular uh, uh, interest to me was a, the July 13, 2003 case of Brenda Paz. Uh, this is a 17-year-old former MS-13 member who turned informant who was found stabbed to death on the banks of the Shenandoah River in Virginia. Uh, she was specifically killed for informing the FBI about the MS-13's criminal activities. And two of her affiliates, colleagues, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the word would be there, were convicted of this murder. Um, and there's activities like you can go back into the 90s and you can see the MS-13 sort of uh, getting its legs underneath it. But this is what I found that made me think MS-13 specifically. There's an Insight Crime, which is a crime analytics website article from July 22nd of 2015. And it's entitled The MS-13's Prostitution Rings in the U.S. And... In this article, which I'm not really going to read verbatim because I'm not trying to spend four hours talking about how this all works, they describe a lot of different ways that people in Virginia and Maryland and Washington, D.C. 
who are living there. Because the article is about basically Montgomery and Prince George's County, as well as Fairfax and Falls Church, uh, Virginia. Uh, the people that they're interviewing are people that have come over from Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. But the, it's not limited to just people from Sal- Salvador, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. They're describing the way that people end up in what is essentially a human trafficking ring and what happens to them. And they mention in this article that it turns out only about one out of every two of the recovered trafficking victims are foreigners. And the, the focus of what they're looking for as far as the gangs themselves is they were looking for younger looking girls as they built this sort of prostitution and child prostitution empire. Where it really spills over uh, into Long Island, New York and becomes a huge deal is in the early 2000s. And over the course of the early 2000s, keep in mind, when I was looking at Shannon Gilbert, I actually called you because there was an uptick in alligators found on Long Island. So I'm aware that I'm way out on a limb here. But if you look at the victims of the Long Island serial killer, just for a second, um, and you can go as far back as the early Fire Island cases here, because I believe this was the old crew of the MS-13 that could have done this. You can go back and you can look at these remains, and they'll they'll say on here that they found, for instance, Jessica Taylor. Jessica Taylor was 20 when she went missing in Manhattan on uh, July 21st, 2003. Her dismembered torso is found July 26, 2003. But then they find her head and her hands at Gilgo Beach in March of 2011. Valerie Mack, she goes missing in 2000, but she goes missing from Philadelphia, which is how, another reason I'm tying all this together. Same thing. They find the torso one place, and then they find her head, her right hand, and her feet in April 2011. You've got an Asian male, Joe, who is... Uh, found to be biologically male wearing women's clothing. So that suggested that they possibly identified as female. They were found in April of 2011, but they're unidentified. They'd been dead for five to 10 years. One of the notable things I find repeatedly in mainstream media sources about the MS-13 is their treatment of transgender persons. You've got a complicated issue with peaches, which so peaches is found in her torso is found in June of 1997 at Hempstead uh, Lake state park, which is Lakeview, New York. So you're not in the same exact space, but you're still in Nassau, Nassau County. Um, And then what's interesting about, Peaches is Peaches is the mother of Baby Doe, and that's by DNA analysis. So Baby Doe being in the mix uh, brings me like to another situation. I will say that I don't know if she fits into like I would have to see her in life, and then I could tell you a little bit more about whether or not she fit into the gang scenario. But what I realized in reading through this, and all you have to do. To, to sort of follow along what I'm doing is you could go straight to Google and you can type in Long Island MS-13 activity and, and you can start to pull up a number of things. But this is what made me remember all of this information. In 2017, there was a Long Island teenager picked up in New York. NPR did a piece on him. So the immigration authorities picked up and detained the 19-year-old high school student. He got suspended from school for doodling the number 504 in a textbook and drawing devil horns on a calculator. So 504 is the international calling code for Honduras, which is where this kid grew up. And the MS-13 organizations have strong ties to Honduras. It's one of the four places they're considered to be tied to. Bullhorns 
are a symbol used by the MS-13. And the H and the M or the WH on the inside of the belt in the photos on the Long Island serial killer uh, evidence page, they are not your typical H and M or WH. They are sort of a loopy script. And I think they are done that way and they are both initials and they are bullhorns. And when I see that belt, I can't think of uh, another reason that they would look like that except for what goes on here. With this teenager, that's all the evidence they have. They have the bullhorns and the 504 area code. He ends up facing uh, deportation. Now, his, the, the way that everything was going, his lawyer asked him to be left out of this, in, this interview because he's already worried that this kid and his family uh, are all going to be deported. The student and the mom are pretty adamant that he's not a gang member. They uh, point out that the Hunting, Huntington High School uh, their mascot is the Blue Devils. And the mom says that the school should not promote uh, a, a, a symbol that students can get suspended for drawing. And that is what ends up being their defense is the, the bullhorns are not devil. Or they're not bullhorns. They're devil horns and they're part of the school. Whether this kid is a part of, of what's going on related to MS-13 or not, never really – um, gets shut down. But what they end up doing is they end up putting out a bunch of pictures related to uh, Suffolk County's gang problem. And they do this in the form of like literal pictures. They show pictures of the Chicago Bulls, Versace belts with initials on the inside, um, off-brand Versace belts with initials on the inside, Nike shoes. And Suffolk County police at that time in 2017 they are accused of having spent from the late 90s to the early 2017 discriminating discriminating against Latinos who are potentially involved in MS-13 activities. They put a year on it, and that's 1997 to 2017. Um, they interview at the NPR piece multiple former gang members. They talk about uh, the different uh, ways that they're viewed in this area. When you dig into whether or not the bullhorns are really like MS-13 materials, you get a ton of guys with tattoos accused of all sorts of crimes. Something happened and there was some sort of change of leadership. And it looks like, uh, as convoluted as all of this is about to sound, that change happened in 2011. So the next articles that you start reading in the New York Post and in the, the various national and, and local sources um, are headlines like MS-13 member gets 50-year sentence in brutal Long Island ambush slaying from 2017. Uh, MS-13 members plead guilty to three murders on Long Island this is uh, from a, a set of 2013 murders, including uh, a murder of a man named Derek Mays that they murdered because they believed his red shirt was indicative that he was in the competing uh, gang activities for that uh, he was a member of the the Crips uh, or the excuse me the Bloods. So they they're going about, and as the membership changes over and the leadership changes over. First of all, the killers get younger and younger, so they can't possibly be the Long Island serial killers. Um, but this is my thinking. This missing person that I started out that has the initials H&M, and I don't want to say his name, he ends up in a press release. And the press release is super interesting to me, and it's the reason that we're even talking about this today because uh, I, I drug Meg down this rabbit hole once again. So this press release is actually from 2021. I don't want to mention the guy's name, though, so let me scroll down here a bit. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Do you want me to send it back to you? 
Uh, no, I know I it's the it. first one you sent me. I found that it. it's actually from the archives. Um, right. That, I, I didn't realize that I had it in the the archive folder. It means it's going to have an FBI symbol on it. Okay, I got it. So here's the article that was interesting to me that made me start thinking maybe they already have him. Two MS-13 street gang members convicted in federal court on racketeering, murder, and firearms charges. This is something the U.S. Attorney's Office released on March 21st, 2013. Following six weeks of trial, a federal jury in Central Islip today returned a verdict convicting Salvadoran street gang members uh, on federal criminal charges, including murder, assault with a dangerous weapon, firearms offenses, and conspiracy. Both defendants are facing mandatory life sentences as a result of their convictions. Sentencing is scheduled for September 2013. The convictions were announced by Loretta Loretta Lynch, the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of New York, uh, George Venizelos, the Assistant Director in Charge of the FBI, uh, the New York Field Office, and Thomas Dale, the Commissioner of the Nassau County Police Department. At trial, the government proved that the defendants along with fellow MS-13 gang members, killed multiple victims between February and March of 2010. The first defendant was convicted in connection with the execution-style murder of a 19-year-old woman in Central Islip, New York, on February the 5th, 2010. Um, He was also convicted of being an accessory after the fact in the murder of uh, this woman and her two-year-old son. They were shot and killed during this incident, both execution-style. He was considered to be the leader of a clique of the MS-13, um, and it was believed that he had authorized uh, this murder and another murder, and that he had helped three of his co-conspirators evade, evade arrest in New York and flee to El Salvador after the commission of the murders. The bodies were found in a secluded wooded area in central Islip. They had been shot in the head and, tw- and, head and chest, and the, the toddler had been shot twice in the head. This is a two-year-old. Somebody shot a two-year-old twice in the head. The other gang member, the secondary defendant here, was convicted in connection with the murder of 21-year-old David Sandler and the attempted murder of 20-year-old Aaron Gallen in Brentwood, New York, in February of 2010. Uh, They lured Sandler, um, whom the MS-13 believed was a member of the rival Latin King Street Gang, to Brentwood under the pretext of wanting to buy marijuana from him. Once he arrived, uh, he was shot in the face at close range and it killed him. And they also shot the other guy who was his friend who miraculously survived and was able to testify here. It goes on and on. And a lot of it is shootings. But when what's unusual about these cases that pop up when you start looking into the Long Island serial killer cases is, first of all, there's these this peaches with a toddler that does not fall into serial killer territory to me as much as gang members would so some of the other things that the ms-13 are into is they do frequently mutilate tattoos and they do frequently make identification difficult of victims so here's like how all i think all of this comes together I think they were just beginning to, in the late 90s, all the way up to 2010, to get good at running prostitution as a way to add to their bottom line. And I think everybody we see here, potentially, is not someone that is a victim of a serial killer, but multiple someone who at different places in time ran into different levels of gang activities. And I say that because some of these people might be affiliated with the gang. Some of these people might be witnesses to some of the gang's activities. And some of these might be women who were actually trafficked for a period of time, but ultimately left out here. And some of these are women who basically were independent and said no And saying no is what got them out of here. And I did verify that there have been an uptick since about 2004 in the number of violent strangulations by MS-13 members, uh, both in Texas, New York, and and also in California. What do you think of like this whole crazy hypothesis? 
Well, I did. I saw where there was pretty extensive law enforcement uh, data, I guess would be the word for it, on the fact that a lot of the violent crimes, uh, gang-related violent crimes, seem to be on the decline. And uh, the thought was that they had uh, sort of migrated over to sex trafficking, right? Um, and, you know, the way that works is they have to have typically girls that uh, they they use as merchandise for customers that pay them money to have sex with them. And that's how the gang makes money, right? And so um, there was a sort of a, a pattern that law enforcement data was showing uh, they were trying to, you know, have these sex rings, I guess. And based on sort of the information we looked over, I do think it's um, entirely possible that it this could be a cumulative uh, dumping ground, basically, for um, in some of the cases when something went wrong with uh, a gang member or gang members plan to recruit someone into their uh, sex trafficking ring. I think the timing of it isn't coincidental. Like, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of bodies on Long Island. There's still bodies found on Long Island today. For some reason, this group of bodies has been linked repeatedly. And my suspicion is I think they have DNA evidence. I think the DNA evidence is just confusing because if you bore down on it, there's probably not a lot of links between the DNA evidence and probably not a lot of hits on any DNA evidence that you find up there. I, you know, until these guys get arrested. And then I don't know what happens when you've got, for instance, the, the, the press release I read there. That's a pretty straight-up murder these guys have been convicted of where they kill the person they think is in the other gang. And that happens a lot. They kill rivals or perceived rivals quite a bit. So when that happens, I don't know that that DNA ends up in CODIS. It's supposed to. Right. But is that the guy you put high on the list as being you know related to crimes outside? You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I, I actually have no idea. Um and, you know, part of the whole CODA situation is because it you don't have to think like that, right? It automatically runs it. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. Anyway, so I thought I was like, here's what happens when this particular thing happens in my world. And I'm not trying to be derogatory towards any of the victims or their families. That's not what I'm saying when I say the next sentence. I get a lot less interested when the explanation that seems the most plausible for me uh, is criminals being criminals and not like serial killers. Like just like these would be lower level gang folks or gang leaders who ordered murders or ordered witnesses to be cleaned up or ordered women to be, you know, sucked into these sex trafficking rings. And the timing of it all, because the other, the Insights article I was talking about, which is like the, the crime analysis done around D.C. and Virginia, the timing is almost identical to the Long Island serial killer cases. So they were looking at it in another jurisdiction at almost the same time that it was happening down here. That makes me wonder if they haven't somehow definitively ruled it out because it seems really obvious when you put it that way, doesn't it? I, you know, they've they've wanted it so badly to be uh, serial killers that I don't, and I say that plural. You know, I I sort of spelled it out to you in a text earlier today, and I said, look, if we, uh, um, if we look at this case and we think to ourselves, like, is it, what's the most likely scenario? There's an evil uncaught serial killer on Long Island who's dumping bodies from what we can tell basically in plain sight are small wooded areas and marshes. Or two, there's multiple uncaught serial killers on Long Island engaging prostitutes and killing them, dumping their bodies in plain sights, including a possible police chief who was dumb enough to get caught over a couple of dildos, some Viagra, and a fake snuff tape. Or three, 
you know, we've got these gang members who are basically trying to, to add to their bottom line and failing in some instances to, you know, they're increasing the numbers of trafficking victims or uh, sex workers for a brief period of time, killing, you know, failing in some instances and killing some of them. And that's who we have here. Like what thing like would make the most sense? And I don't know the answer to that. I pose the question because that is, it's the most plausible to me. Like, why can't we find the serial killer on Long Island? And the answer is there is no serial killer on Long Island. But we do have this. It's more like it's a uh, it's the circumstances warranting that same sort of utilizing that dumping ground. Right. It's the same kind of uh, as opposed to like one person doing it. It's people who are doing similar things and find themselves in need to, you know, dump a body basically. Yeah. I think Um, of like the Pinelands or the Pine Barrens where like in New Jersey. Well, um, I think that, uh, you know, there are quite a few dumping grounds, um, even quite a few we don't even know about, but it always, it it does seem odd. uh, But I've never thought now the Eastbound Strangler is different, but uh, with the Long Island serial killer, it's, never said serial killer to me and I think that my brain has problems processing that uh but this is a more plausible scenario to me I think um I still think that Shannon Gilbert is more than likely um I don't feel like I don't feel like somebody killed her I feel like she died um and you know there are questions as to how that occurred uh, based on the circumstances of her being like a young, otherwise healthy, uh, you know, twenty-something year old, it that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the girls that were the other girls that were dumped, you know, unfortunately, I I feel like they were just uh, they were victimized, but that wasn't the initial. Uh, that wasn't what. Like, I don't think that they were killed purposefully until there was a problem, right? Because serial killers, they're looking to kill somebody, right? That's what they're doing. I think that um, had they gone along with whoever was trying to influence what was happening here, they wouldn't have been killed. Or, you know, there's always a chance that something went awry in the sex trade like, you know, somebody chokes somebody for pleasure, but it goes overboard and they accidentally kill them. I think we've talked about that quite a bit. Um, and then that would warrant a body dump, right? Because you don't want that coming back on you typically. Yeah. So I almost don't want to say this out loud. I only really say it here because, like, we've been talking about the Shannon Gilbert case. And uh, we had kind of a lull, a moment where I could record something about it. But the truth is I, I worry that sex worker homicides already get a weird rap that makes a, you know, makes a lot of homicide investigations come to kind of a halt when uh, these high risk victims are, are the people uh, they, they are the victims. These are the people that are, you know, targeted here, Police don't care as much. It's interesting uh, that you say that because I've been wondering. I don't really know how to look at the statistics on this because it seems like at least the known victims that showed up during the search um, at the end of 2010, they weren't necessarily from Long Island. So I don't know, like, as far as, you know, the relevance of how many people are missing uh, on Long Island has with this particular set of circumstances that we're talking about here. Are you saying that because the sex workers were from off Long Island, you don't know if it lines up statistically to be related? But I was just saying, like, I don't know, like, I don't know how far around we would have to look to see who all is is missing, right? Like, because while there's so many hundred people missing from Long Island, like, this could be a situation where, you know, you need to look further than just Long Island, right? Absolutely. And I thought about that. I just don't know where exactly to go with it. And that's part of the problem, I think. Um, But that's also why I pulled up all the unidentified remains, because I was like, how many of those, like, could be tied to all of this? 
I don't know how relevant it would be, but we were talking about how it possibly stopped if it was a serial killer. There's all kinds of narratives out there, but I realized that we don't necessarily know that like anybody's been back out there to look in the 12 years that have passed, right? We don't know if there's more bodies out there like that have been put there since those initial bodies were found. Um, and so it's sort of skewed, right? A little it's bit, not yeah. A, it's not a place where like they go out there commonly to see if, you know, there's bodies. Now, it just so happened the bodies that were found, there were some that were, you know, quite a ways back in time and some were not as far back in time. And uh, to me, though, uh, just from sort of a, uh, a legend's standpoint, I wouldn't want to be taking my cadaver dog out there because, like, it seems like it's just going to be a place that you're going to find more bodies, right? Yeah. And so I've never heard it addressed uh, beyond the fact that, you know, this event happened at the end of 2010 and then the beginning of 2011. And then I don't know, I didn't hear anybody say like we looked every possible place or like they just stopped. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. And then, you know, since then, I haven't heard that, you know, oh, we take the cadavers out there, cadaver dogs out there just to make sure there's not more bodies. I mean, for all we know, there could be more bodies out there. Well, I did look at the unidentified bodies in uh, just in Nassau and Suffolk to kind of keep it easy to to digest. Uh, and there definitely been more bodies found. The thing is, this pop where it's like all kind of the same age-ish group, that ended in basically 2011. Then a lot of the bodies found after that were either older or, you know, slightly different demographics. But there were a, there was at least one body I looked at and went, oh, well, that kind of fits the other thing. Um, and that was a there was a set of skeletal remains found in a garbage bag of a, a 20 year old Asian female, uh, or 20 to 30 year old Asian female. She's um, in a garbage bag. Yeah. That was off sheep lane. So I don't know if she counts. Well, that would be she was different, found in 2013. It? Yeah, it would be different, but it could just be that things were changing. It, you know, it wouldn't be complete if I didn't circle completely back around to, you know, something to do with Israel Keys. But uh, recently <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've wondered if, um, you know, if Deborah Feldman wasn't a victim of this sort of crime, uh, I don't necessarily think she would have been being put into a sex trafficking ring because she wasn't, you know, like young, but it's made me wonder, uh, have you ever thought about that? Like if she got killed by a John and just disposed of, she's, she's one of these bodies that's going to be uncovered. She could have even been uncovered by now. Um, and not identified. Every once in a while, I go on uh, unidentified persons for her area and like a three-county area because without like giving away everything, I have ties to that area. I look around and go, hmm, I wonder if. And I guess because, you know, Deborah Feldman was a huge part of um, the Israel Keys case for us and uh, it drove us both a little bit crazy. Um, and I feel like uh, some closure on her case, independently of whether it had anything to do with Israel Keys or not, it seems like that would be like such an easy place to start, right? Yeah. Um, because you've got her situation, you know at least roughly where she was last seen, and you know she hasn't been heard from since. It'd be really great if she just showed back up alive and she'd been on a vacation. You know, that would be the how I would love for that to end, but we know that's more than likely not going to happen. To me, though, it is odd uh, because of where she went. Uh, she was in, was she in? Hackensack, New Jersey. Hackensack. I was going to say Hoboken. That wasn't right. Hackensack, New Jersey. And it seems to me like she would be somebody that could have possibly been, you know, what, a customer considered to be a disposable person. Uh, well, there have only been two white females that are unidentified still in New Jersey that fit like the age and height and stuff. And 
they were a little too late in time to be Deborah Feldman. One was in 2014 and the other was in 2020. So I, they comes were up. They, was there post-mortem interval, like not was re- very more recently? Like there were still, like they were both in the river there and they were. I was gonna, oh, well, I was going to say, so when I look at things like that, um, if they're, if, bones were found right um i feel like there's more leeway on the post-mortem interval which would be the time that the medical examiner is estimating uh between when the person died and like when the body's been found right yeah um and so if it's just bones sitting there uh i expand it pretty far right yeah but if you've yeah. got a situation where the it's saying that uh like the person is still identifiable and they've been their post-mortem interval is like minutes or just a day or two then yeah. it's probably pretty accurate i mean you could go you could stretch it a little bit but it's not going to be years right yeah i look all the time for unidentified persons remains in upper upstate new york just in case somebody comes across something. Yeah, that's all I got I, um, on Shannon Gilbert. What do you got? That that's it. I'm I'm hoping I can get that out of my head. I'm pretty sick of uh I I feel really bad about the whole situation. We had a lot happen, it seems like, uh <laughs> here yeah, in the past like, couple yeah. weeks. Yeah, it was. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com, and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at TrueCrimeXS, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 Five five nine three. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. This is True Crime XS. You have to remember when it comes to these cases, there are other possibilities, and maybe there weren't drugs involved. One of the most common risk factors in sex workers is strangulation. And if you go looking for, like, strangulation deaths, there's a high number of sex workers who are affected by this. In addition to that, it's, it's a sign of domestic violence if you look for non-fatal stranglings. So you have to consider the fact that maybe Shannon Gilbert was choked or strangled, and that's what created this. Because if someone blacks out, it can have a really similar effect to what you're hearing here, it doesn't affect the body overall, but it can, a lack of oxygen into the brain can have a lot of different effects. And you could potentially have a situation here where there's very little drugs involved for her, but there is some kind of situation she was in uh, with this person that was non-fatal that scared her and caused the injuries that... Uh, ultimately make her sound a little slower, a little calmer, but made her paranoid that like she wasn't going to make it. Uh, that's, that is a frequent occurrence. And if you go Googling sex workers who die by strangulation, there's almost constantly someone on trial for something similar to this. So it's possible that this is unrelated to the Long Island serial killer, but still related to strangulation as part of the sex work that doesn't make it acceptable. I'm just saying that would also be an explanation for what happened to her.